Good morning, family. So Caleb gets to be with his sweet family today. They, I got to take a weekend out of town and just be together. So that's wonderful. And I get to be here. So um, the first thought that popped into my head this morning that I felt like the Holy Spirit was speaking to me was everything depends on trusting me. He said everything depends on trusting the Holy Spirit. Everything depends on trusting my word. And so we're standing in God's truth today. And I've been thinking about it for a few weeks, um, just about truth. And I know we keep on saying that in our era and in our culture, we, we just, people don't really believe in solid truth anymore. Um, that's not really a new thing. When Pontius Pilate was questioning Jesus 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I have come to bear witness to the truth, and anyone who loves my truth listens to my voice. And do you remember what Pilate said? He said, well, it's truth, right? And he walked away. Well, 400 years prior to that, in ancient Greece, there was a guy, a philosopher named Gorgias. He was not that gorgeous, but that was his name. His mother thought he was gorgeous. It's spelled differently. And he said this. He said, nothing exists. Even if something exists, nothing can be known about it. And even if something can be known about it, Knowledge about it cannot be communicated to others. And even if it can be communicated, it cannot be understood. He was a real peach, you know? (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I was talking about truth um, with my son, Brennan, and and he was like, yeah, it's kind of like life without structure. Like, he loves structure. He's an ROTC, and he like, yes, yes, sir, whatever, no, ma'am, that kind of thing. He's like... Uh, we went out of town for a day or so, and the kids were ki- the kids were not alone. Okay, my mom she lives in a casita um, attached to our house, so there was an adult on the premises, and she would pop in and just check and make sure everything was okay. But really, we the parents were not giving the structure, and and we got home, and Brennan was like, "That was like floating in outer space. <laughs> that was awful. <laughs> like, see, you need your mama." But, but life without truth is like that. It's like spinning out of control and there's no directions to orient you and there's no solid surface to grab onto. Our culture thinks that that's, that's freedom. But really freedom of movement, at least for humans, depends on a solid surface to interact with. If you want to sit or stand or run or do Zumba, whatever you want, if you want to lie down and rest because you're tired, you need the solid You need this solid. And that is how it is with our soul. Our soul needs the solid truth of God's word. So there is a truth. His name is Jesus Christ. He can be known. And he has come to communicate himself to us through his word. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it like this. He said, when you read God's word, you must think to yourself, here and now is the living God speaking with me. And so, God, that is what we're asking for, that as we open your word, Father, please help. Nobody needs to hear my thoughts this morning. We want to think your thoughts after you. We desperately need your truth to stand on. And I pray that the way only your Holy Spirit can do, that you will take your words individually to each person here and have that conversation, Lord, that we need to have have with you this morning. And I just trust you. Because everything depends on trusting your Holy Spirit. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.
So we are continuing in the book of Luke, and the title of the message today is Real Jesus, Real People, and Real Rest. Does anyone feel like they need a little rest? Yeah. Um, Mom of four. Okay, so our text is Luke chapter 5, verse 33, through chapter 6, verse 11. And we're introduced, Jesus refers to himself in this passage as the Lord of the Sabbath, which is the Lord of rest. And Luke, the author, sets it up in a really interesting way. He, he kind of sets it up with this, then these interactions with the Pharisees and with Jesus. And he's going to contrast it for us as they kind of volley back and forth in their conversations. And we're going to get to see, number one, that the way of Jesus is not the way of the Pharisee. Isaiah 55, verse 8 through, through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And then we're going to see that the authority of Jesus is greater than the authority of the Pharisees. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And finally, because he is the authority and he is the Lord of the Sabbath, he is able to bring us into rest. So, um, you know, the Pharisees, they've been watching Jesus teach for a while. They've been watching him perform miracles and do healings. They've been seeing these crowds following him. And they're getting a little disgruntled because they feel like it's their job to interpret the law. They study it. They teach it. And they're going to enforce it. It's their job. And Jesus is kind of cramping their style a bit. I was thinking about Pharisees and trying to figure out, like, what's a fresh way to describe what the Pharisees were like? And Mike and I were hiking a couple weeks ago, and it just came to me. When I'm hiking, I am a total Pharisee. <laughs> that, that's an actual picture of me hiking. You know, you drag me out of bed at 6 a.m. You want to go hiking. That's very sweet and all, but I just I don't enjoy it. And so the first annoying thing about a hike is when you get to the very start of the trail, you're just a bureau, all right, let's do this. And all of these people are already coming down because they're done already. Like, when did you guys wake up? And they're like so chipper and so cheerful. Morning. Morning. (laughs) Listen, I did not come here to chit-chat. I came here for one reason. Mike promised me a donut. (laughs) You think I'm kidding? No, it's... Do it for donuts. Do it for donuts. All the way up. Now, they have... I have a pointy thing. Donuts with Fruit Loops? Are you kidding? How awesome is that? Now, you might think, doesn't eating a donut defeat the purpose of the hike? Nope. As far as I'm concerned, the donut is the purpose. Right? I got a clap. (laughs) But... You would not believe how many people are in that donut shop who have clearly not taken their morning hike yet. I just want to say, excuse me, sir, put that donut back. That's not yours. You did not earn that donut. Okay. Second annoying thing about a hike is when you get to the really steep part. And there are these, those aren't natural. So nature did not put those there. You know that, right? Like the mountain rangers put those there. To discourage you, these stone steps, they're so high, like this, like this one right here. But I'm doing it for donuts. So if I just use the press down on the thigh trick over and over, I'll be okay. 
And I'm breathing and I'm sweating and I'm doing the work and I'm looking good. And then along the side of this, you can't see it, but along the side of this, there's this gradual, gentle incline. And my husband, who actually knows how to hike, comes walking along, no problem, and I'm over here having trouble. And he says, this is what he actually said to me. He said, come walk with me. This way is better. It's easier on your back, and it's less exhausting. And I'm over here, and I'm like looking at it, and I'm like, no way! That's not even on the trail. That's cheating. I am a serious hiker, and I will take the serious stone steps all the way to the top. But then the Holy Spirit, you know, convicts my heart, and he says, your husband just wants to be with you, you know. Yeah, I know. He doesn't want you to hurt yourself. Oh, I know. (laughs) He's buying you a donut. (laughs) Like, okay, all right. So I relent, and I go, and I walk the way of the husband. (laughs) and things are fine. You know, the sun rises over the whatever. Anyway, so the Pharisees are a little bit like that. They have really ridiculous expectations for themselves and for others. They're not pleasant to be around, as we've seen. And there's nothing restful about their way. And then Jesus comes along the side, and he says, what does he say? Come to me, all who are weary And heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's read some scripture. Okay, so the book of Luke, chapter 5, starting in verse 33. We're going to start to see these interactions between the Pharisees and Jesus. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast in those days. And so you can already see they're on totally different wavelengths. The Pharisees are like, why are you guys not taking things more seriously? A bunch of slackers and underachievers. And Jesus responds with this relational language about a wedding and about a bridegroom and about wedding guests who should be feasting. That's your job at a wedding. You should be feasting, celebrating, enjoying his presence. Now, the time will come when Jesus is taken to be crucified, and they will fast, and they will pray, but they'll do it from their hearts because they love him. See, the Pharisees don't love God. God laments this in Isaiah chapter 9, 29, verse 13. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they've been taught. So the Pharisees, you know, they're breathing, they're sweating, they're working their way to the top versus enjoyment in the presence of God. The disciples are enjoying the person of Jesus Christ. And that's not to say, I'll just make this clear, that's not to say that it's without obedience. So in the portrayal of the wedding, Jesus is the focus of the attention, all eyes on him. And they are there joyfully to serve him. Anything he asks of them, they will do. 
but it's in the context of the relationship. And that's the difference. Well, Jesus isn't going to do things their way. And they keep trying. They're going to keep trying over and over to fit him into their mold. But to illustrate, I'm not doing it your way, he says this in verse 36. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. So just think of this brand new expensive coat maybe. And then you take it and you start cutting patches out of it to like patch your old threadbare one. That's crazy. See, Jesus is offering this new life like a new garment. We may receive it. The Pharisees, they can receive it if they want. But what you may not do is cut out the parts of Jesus that appeal to you, right? And use them to patch your old way of life or your old system so you can cling to it. That's not what he's offering. This is not a patch kit. He is offering you in exchange his new life for your old life. That's what he's offering. He goes on, verse 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Sorry, it's making me thirsty. I'm just kidding. I take two sips of wine and I am asleep. So Jesus is offering new life like new wine. And I didn't know a whole lot about new wine, but I looked it up on Google. And they said that um, in the process of fermentation, the, if I can remember it correctly, so the yeast is taking the sugars that are in the grape juice and they're turning them into ethanol and maybe carbon dioxide as a byproduct. So it's chemistry in a bag. Sounds like fun. But this wine skin, this animal skin, they usually used a goat skin, uh, it had to be fresh because it had to be elastic enough to flex with all those chemi- chemical reactions going on inside. It's expanding, it's moving. And if you try to put the new wine that's still fermenting into an old wine skin, it's too brittle. And it, it'll crack on you, and you're going to have a mess on your hands. Jesus is saying the old self, you guys, you Pharisees, the old self, the old religious system you're touting, it cannot contain the vibrancy of this new life that I am offering to you. This part's cool. I did not know this before, but I learned it. I guess if I ever read the passage before, you know, when I read it, I would have assumed that they just throw the old wineskin out. I never thought about it, but I'm an American. That's what you do. It's old, right? Um, no, that's bad. It is. <laughs> but they were not so wasteful in ancient times. And so they would take the old wineskin and they would cleanse it and they would soak it and bathe it in oil until it was completely remade, completely brand new again and, and fresh and able to contain new life. And this is our story, church. Tom Kuyper, are you ready? What can wash away my sin? There it is. And what can make me whole again? Hmm. So here we are, you know, we were these old 
vessels with our hearts heart hardened toward God and we were sin deadened and the blood of Jesus washes us clean and makes us whole. And then did you know that in scripture oil is used as a symbol for the Holy Spirit? So we're cleansed in the blood of Jesus. We're soaked and bathed and anointed in the Holy Spirit. And therefore, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Oh, taste and see that the Lord, he is good. Hallelujah. I'm so excited. Okay. One more fun fact. The author, Luke, also writes the book of Acts, and he, um, he talks about at Pentecost when the disciples, you know, they've been waiting, waiting on the Holy Spirit for days and days and days, and finally the Holy Spirit comes, and there's tongues of fire, and they're speaking in the, in the languages of all the people there, and 3,000 people come to know Jesus, and the onlookers, you know, the skeptics, this is what they say. They're just drunk on new wine, but not that kind of new wine, right? This is, this is the new life that he was promising them and he delivered, but the Pharisees aren't interested, you know, and it's sad because he goes on to say in verse 39, no one after drinking old desires new for he says the old is good. I'm good. Thanks. I got it. I'm good. No, thanks. The people, I'm told, like the old wine, like the stuff that's been aged in oak barrels with silky tannins and like hints of, listen, if the label on the bottle says hints of chocolate or caramel, they're lying. Just eat the chocolate. What's the big deal? But people like the old. And so it's interesting because... I guess that's a really strong flavor, new wine, and it's really potent, and it's offensive. Have you ever noticed how people are so offended at the gospel of Jesus Christ? And the Pharisees were too. So we've seen that the way of Jesus is not the way of the Pharisees, and now we get to see that the authority of Jesus is greater than theirs. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 1. On a Sabbath... While he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And I can just see these poor guys like they're walking along and they've got their grain like midway to mouth and they hear this and they're like, well, what? So are we not supposed to, you know, like I thought it was okay. And they look to Jesus like, is this okay? And the trouble is, this question, what is lawful on the Sabbath? And it's kind of a big question, and it's, it's hard to answer because the law itself did not give specifics of how to observe the Sabbath. So certainly there were some specific instructions given as the Israelites were journeying through the wilderness and into the promised land. But what we have here really is the oral tradition where the, the religious leaders had tried to study scripture. They were trying to do the diligent thing. And so they were studying it and they're arguing with each other and they're trying to figure it out. And they keep adding to the list of the kinds of work they think should probably be prohibited on the Sabbath based on their understanding of scripture. And it's that oral tradition 
that the Pharisees are accusing the disciples of breaking. So it's not, it's not God's law they're violating. It's their version of the law. And I just think they were so busy with their checklists. You know, they were, they were trying to do the right thing. Let's give them credit. They were trying to do good. But they were so busy with their checklists, you know, that when the living Christ came to have an interaction with them face to face, they missed him. And I think how awful for them to spend their whole lives thinking that they are honoring and serving God. And when he shows up, they don't recognize his face. So it's not about checklists. Who is it that interprets God's word to us and leads us in specific acts? When I wake up today and, I, and I'm spending time in God's word and then I go out, who am I listening to for specific things? Is it my to-do list? These are all the things I, I was going to be good. I was going to be kind. I was going to help. Or who, who am I listening to? Holy Spirit. When Jesus told his disciples he was going to send them the Holy Spirit, he told them in John, you will do the same great works that I have done on earth and you will do greater works still because the Holy Spirit will indwell you. He will lead you. He will empower you. And he is the one who will speak to you directly from the highest authority. And who is that highest authority? It's Jesus Christ. He's standing here with the Pharisees and he doesn't have to justify himself to their accusations, their version of the law. Instead, he's going to to reveal to them that he himself has authority over all things. Verse 3. Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. So for me, that wasn't self-explanatory. I don't know about you. How is this an answer? But the Pharisees knew this account really well because they studied the law. They studied God's word. They knew. And this account is found in 1 Samuel chapter 22, where David is running for his life from King Saul. He's not trusting God. He lies to the priests and tells them that he's on some kind of an errand for the king. And he takes this bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, and he flees. And the story ends really badly when King Saul finds out that the priests assisted David. He goes in with his guys, and he has the entire priestly city of Nob destroyed. So he kills 85 priests who were in active service, and all the other men, the women, the children, the livestock, slaughtered. So... This is, this, is not, this is not a good story. And the Pharisees know that. And it seems to me that Jesus is saying something like this. Since you're so eager to judge in matters of the law, would you care to weigh in on what David did? And they're like, mm, looking at each other, mm, no. Right? Because David had high authority for them. He was an anointed holy king of Israel. He was the psalmist. He was the giant slayer. You know, it was his line that was going to produce the Messiah. King David, we don't have anything to say about him. 
like not even a murmur, not even a hint of accusation against David because of his authority. But an even greater authority is standing before them now in the person of Jesus Christ. And he says to them, verse five, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I was curious what the son of man reference was. Why does he? I've always wondered that. Why not the son of God? Why is it the son of man? And so I looked it up and it's a reference from Daniel chapter seven. And it's a prophecy about the authority of the coming Messiah. It says, uh, chapter seven, starting in verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And he is making a claim to that title and that authority. And the Pharisees know exactly who he's claiming to be. See, he has a greater authority than David. David, in an act of self-preservation, he brought about the demise of an entire city. Jesus used his authority to lay down his own life in the greatest act of humility the world has ever seen, to bring about the salvation of the entire planet. He certainly has more authority than these Pharisees who use their authority... Matthew chapter 23, verse 4 says, to tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. John 10, verse 18 tells us, Jesus says, I have the authority to lay my life down. I have the authority to take it back up again. That's how he uses his authority. And because he is the Lord of the Sabbath, we're going to see that he has the authority to bring us into his rest. So what is Sabbath rest? We've been doing a lot of talking about the Sabbath, but what is it actually and how does it impact us? The Hebrew word is Shabbat and it means to stop or to cease. I've even heard it, it means to restrain And so the first time we see it, of course, is in the Genesis account of creation. We know it. God creates the world in the six days. And on the seventh day, he shabbats. He rests. Well, it's not because he's tired or that his energy is depleted that he rests. He stops because his work is completed. That's when God rests, when the work is finished. Because um, he has unlimited energy and he doesn't need the rest... He doesn't need rest the way that we do when we've been working. Isaiah 40, 28 says, The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. He stops when he's done. So I can envision, maybe you can, in the fellowship of the eternal trinity on that seventh day, just that enjoyment and that fellowship over this completed creation work. Hey, I'm satisfied with this. This is good. And Adam and Eve are living in that state of completion with God in the garden. 
And they're living from a state of total rest and enjoyment. And we don't see anything about toil or labor or eking out a living from the cursed ground until the fall dismantles their state of rest. He just, it dismantles their state of completion. And so God begins a new work with all of his unlimited energy. This time it's not the work of creation. Hebrews 4 tells us that, um, that his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. That's his creation works. He finished those. But he's going to do a new work, and we know it because in John 5, when Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, he says, my father is working until now. And I am working. What are they work? What is he working on? He's working on redemption. Because he had this whole complete thing going on. Now it's broken, but he's the God of completion. So he's going to bring it back. He's going to restore it. And he wants his children to know that he will do it. He wants them to know that he's the God of completion and that he will restore it. So how can he help them? experience this in their day-to-day lives when they're when they're living in the reality of the curse on planet earth you know what i'm saying so i was thinking about it i'm like it's kind of like when i'm cooking dinner like i planned this menu last week i circled the ads and i menu plan and i wrote the name of the meal on the chalkboard so my kids could see it now i'm i'm in the kitchen and i'm chopping and i'm mixing and the oven is preheating and one of my kids comes in like are you gonna make dinner i am elbow deep in flour here you guys there's stuff bubbling over yeah i'm making dinner i got this and then the next kid comes in are we having what are we having for dinner is it finished yet can we eat are we gonna eat are we gonna eat Yes, we are going to eat. I'm, I'm, I will not stop cooking until this meal is delivered to the table. I can promise you that. But to give them some assurance, I give them a taste. I'm like, here, try this. This is what it's going to taste like when it's done. I'm going to finish that. Here, try this. Take some celery sticks. Whack yourselves to pieces outside. But I'm going to get this done. You can trust me. And so in my mind, this is the way I'm thinking about it. God gives the Sabbath to his people to give them a taste. This is a taste of what I'm going to give you. I'm working on it. Be still. Can you wait on me? So let's talk about the different kinds of Sabbath. Rob, can you give me a blank slide up there? Because that's distracting me. I don't know if that's a possibility. So we'll talk about the Sabbath day first. The Sabbath day is a day of rest. It was a day to bring your offering to the Lord. It was a day to hear God's word read aloud. A day to tell your children stories of God's faithfulness. And it was a day, um, well, it's like you have a meal without having to prepare it. That sounds amazing. It's like, take out, here we come. And he's giving them this taste. Like, you just need to refrain from ordinary work. Okay. We're going to make eye contact today. We're going to be in relationship with each other. And he wants them to know that he's not going to stop until that's how it is all the time. Here's your taste. Thank you, Rob. He's going to accomplish it. And he's like, can you, can you rest in that? Will you trust me? He also instituted the Sabbath year. So every seventh year, just like the seventh day, they were to not farm the land. They were supposed to let it 
lie fallow and just rest because we know that new nutrients get depleted from the soil if you just constantly constantly farm it like give it a rest and he promised that he would provide enough food in that sixth year of farming there will be a bumper crop it will last you so rest give the land some rest and to me this is a taste for them that he is going to restore the land itself he's going to restore creation there is no one who is more committed to restoration than our god we have very sophisticated ideas that, that we're the ones who are going to do it. But the Lord is, the Lord is saying it right here. I'm, and we're going to read in Revelation 21 about that total restoration of creation and the land itself. He says, will you now throw your weight on the promise and live today from a state of rest, knowing that I will do this? He also institutes the year of Jubilee. So every seven times seven years, um, the slaves were supposed to be released and debts were supposed to be forgiven. And the land was supposed to go back to the original owner. So every 50 years, you got a fresh start. You know the word restored? I looked it up and it's all about setting you back to your original. God wants to set people back on their feet. Isn't that incredible? He's committed to justice and restoration for oppressed and enslaved and struggling persons. And that is why when Jesus preaches in the synagogue for the first time on the Sabbath day, and he tells, he reads from Isaiah 61, it's all about freedom for the captives, isn't it? Because that's what he's committed to. And he's saying, will you throw your full weight on the promise that I will do this and live from a state of rest now like it's a reality. Because it is a reality. Well, for the most part, they, they didn't. And we have a hard time with this too. They were hyper-focused on the nitty-gritty of the Sabbath day. And they completely neglected the seventh year, rest for the land. And they neglected the year of Jubilee. They did not want to forgive debts or release their slaves. And guess what? They were not a people at rest. But God didn't stop. And as we read this last passage, let's just keep in the forefront of our minds God's commitment to total restoration. Okay, Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 6. On another Sabbath, he loves to do his work on the Sabbath. What is he showing them? So on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. Now in the NIV, it says, Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. 
It's like, it's like they were just, they were just trying to get in the way, trying to get in the way of God's plan to restore things. And even now he's trying to tell them, I haven't forgotten you. I know I can, he's living on planet earth. He knows what it's like to live in a human body on a planet that's cursed, but I haven't forgotten you. Will you trust me? I am in the business of restoration. My father is working. I am working. And that is what the Sabbath is for. Do you not see it? Do you not perceive it? Verse 11, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. We know what they eventually did to him. And even that was God's plan all along. What did Jesus accomplish on that cross? Our redemption, our restoration, our completion. Now, Jesus said, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Anybody else ever ever had like a knee jerk reaction to that verse? What do you mean? Be perfect. No one's perfect, right? Okay, listen, when you get a knee jerk reaction to something you read in scripture, take a deep breath and look deeper because there is something there for you. The word perfect is the word complete. God says, be complete, be whole as your father is complete, as he is whole. That's what he's come to do. It's possible because he did it at the cross. We are longing for wholeness. I ask you to just look around. You know, you don't even have to. Whatever you saw on the news, you know, whatever you heard on that podcast, the TED talk, you know, the book that you read, and we all, you can feel it. People are just looking to fill that emptiness with something. We want wholeness. It's what we were made for. And people, you know, without Christ, we are empty. We are hungry. We are brokenhearted sinners. I'll say that word again, sinners. We hate that word, but we know it's true. All we have to do is look around. And in our sin, we are separated from God, not having a clue how to get home. Isn't that all we want? Every good film, every good book is just about how to get from where you are home. And everyone's exhausted trying to figure it out. And the living Christ comes to have a face-to-face encounter with you. And he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will bring you home. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Come with me. And how do we enter that rest? We come. We come. He says, come walk on this path with me. It's a lot better. It's easier on your back. It's way less exhausting. Trust me. Walk with me. Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Believe in the name of Jesus and be saved and be restored. And now we who have believed have entered that rest. That's what Hebrews 4 tells us. And you say, I don't feel rested. I know. We don't feel rested because we're living in a fallen world. 
And our experience of his rest is not yet perfect. You know, we're still living on a planet that's cursed. Romans 8 says that creation is groaning. And so we are groaning as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. Though outwardly we are wasting away, but inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Second Corinthians tells us. But the restoration is coming. And this is what we have to look forward to. This is the meal that he is going to lay down on that table. This is the feast. And it comes from Revelation chapter 21. And I would ask you to just close your eyes. And envision what is coming. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. There's that wedding analogy again. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And if they are trustworthy and true, then we can rest in them. Will we throw our weight on all that God has accomplished for us at the cross of Jesus Christ? And will we throw our weight on the promise of Christ's return and enter into his rest? Now, the Sabbath was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, instituted a new covenant. And the sign of, one of the signs of the new covenant is the Lord's Supper. When we take the bread and we take the cup, we remember his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. And every time we take it, we proclaim his death until he comes. And it's a taste, right? It's a taste, And we are waiting for him to bring this final restoration. And we can count on him because he's going to do it. Lord Jesus, you are trustworthy. And as you told me this morning when I first woke up in bed, everything depends on trusting you. And so I lay down my pride. I lay down my thinking I can do it my way. I lay down my agenda. And Lord Jesus and Holy Spirit, lead us in the, in the way everlasting. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.